Please note, in today's episode we will be discussing the topic of death and burial practices, which may be upsetting for some listeners. In the north, there seems to have been a long tradition of such burials. A person of high status, possibly British, or at this date maybe an incoming Anglo-Saxon. In 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums, we're delving into the collections to discover objects that can tell us stories about the past and make us think about the present and future. I'm Rachel Roberts, Collections Registrar at Lancaster City Museums. Today's object is an intriguing and somewhat enigmatic artefact, an extremely rare survivor from a little understood ceremony in a time period that's still a bit of a mystery. Today's object is the Quorma Shroud. The shroud is a roughly square piece of woolen fabric, around 160cm by 150cm. One corner has been cut off diagonally, but this triangle of fabric was also found with the rest of the shroud. There are no patterns on the fabric, but today it has a rusty red hue thanks to years buried in peat-rich soil. The shroud was found as part of a larger Anglo-Saxon burial on the slopes of Clougher Pike, outside Lancaster. It was contained, along with some human remains, within a coffin, which was discovered during the construction of a car park near the Jubilee Tower viewpoint. The discovery of the burial and the shroud, which is an extremely rare survival, opened up a mystery which is still not fully understood today, and we may never know who the occupant of the coffin was or why they came to be buried there. We spoke to Carolyn Dalton, Museum's Development Manager at Lancaster City Museums, and Professor Fiona Edmonds of Lancaster University's Department of History and Director of the Regional Heritage Centre to find out more about the burial and the world which it came from. Carolyn began by telling us about the discovery of the shroud. The burial was discovered on St Patrick's Day, which was the 17th of March 1973, which is 50 years ago this year. It consists of a log coffin containing a shroud with a quantity of short curly hair and around 14 finger and toenails. So it was found at Jubilee Tower, just below Clougher Pike, as they were digging out the car park, and it was discovered under around 30 to 45 centimetres of peat, There was no accompanying barrow or cairn or similar to indicate that the burial might be there. So with burials like this, location is very important and the burial is around 290 metres above sea level as the land rises steeply up to Clougher Pike. The land is very boggy and there's a small stream, the Wormsyke, nearby. The burial was aligned northeast-southwest, and that's been judged by experts to be roughly west-east, and that is significant. At first it was thought to be a hollowed-out log canoe, as only the top part was found and that was badly damaged by the digger. But then it was realised that, that actually there was another part and it was a log coffin. The shroud was then discovered along with the hair and nails, so several of the nails had adhered to the shroud and this does demonstrate that the shroud was wrapped around a naked body. The burial has been radiocarbon dated with a 77.3% probability that the burial is between 640 and 720 AD or CE depending on which you use and with a 58.5% probability 
to 650 to 690 and is the only complete shroud that has survived in this country from that time. The corner was cut off to cover the feet, so the body lay on the shroud diagonally for wrapping and it may have been sewn in as no binding cloths or pins have ever been found. The shroud is a plain weave with an edging and it's made of wool and is coarse and hairy but seems to have been formed from the wool of two different breeds of sheep, one a breed like a hairy Shetland and one like a modern long wool. The coarse fibres were undyed but the finer ones seemed to have been white and the shroud would have looked a sort of off-white when it was buried. So the shroud hair and nails have survived because they contain quite a lot of keratin which doesn't dissolve, unlike calcium, in the acidic peaty water, although everything has been stained now a peaty brown colour. The log coffin is around 2.3 metres long and 50 centimetres wide, so the body would have been lying at full length within the coffin. So are burials like this quite common, and do they happen elsewhere around the country? Log coffin burials were quite common in the Bronze Age, but seem to have been phased out of visible use in the early Iron Age, which is around 800 BC. They reappeared in what is now Scotland in the middle to late Iron Age. Over time, they drifted southwards into the north of what is now England, modern-day Cumbria, and particularly Yorkshire, County Durham and Northumberland. But at that point in time was a mix of British and Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. By the 8th century, they were in decline north of the Tees, and chest burials and oak coffins were being used. However, there is a second area of log coffins, dating mainly from the late 6th to the 7th century, around Kent and East Anglia. So in total, there are only 18 sites around Britain where early medieval log coffins have been found. At nine sites, there's just the one coffin, like at Quorma, while at the other nine, there are an awful lot more sort of proper cemeteries, with over 500 found in total. Most of them are based in Kent and East Anglia. There seems to have been a distinct difference between the northern log coffin burials, where here the practice seems to have restarted in the mid to late Iron Age and then continued onwards. In Kent and East Anglia, the use of log coffins seems to have been influenced by the continent, where these burials occur around the Low Countries and on the border between modern France and Germany. This was possibly nostalgia for what they saw as their homeland, or may have been influenced by the ruling Merovingian dynasty. But it's very much seen as being different from what was happening in the north because there's such a large gap between the Bronze Age and the late 6th century. In the north, there seems to have been just a short gap of a few hundred years and then a long tradition of such burials. It should be remembered, in what is now Scotland, they didn't really have the same Roman period as we do further south. The Antonine War, which stretched across from the Clyde to the Forth, was short-lived, with the Romans regrouping on Hadrian's Wall between Carlisle and Newcastle. In the north, this may have continued to be a British tradition. The other log coffin burials that have been found on the eastern, more Anglo-Saxon side of the Kingdom of Northumbria might possibly still relate to British customs and practices, as there were still distinctive groups of British in this area into the 8th century. And we can tell that because of place names such as Walton, which means village of the Welsh, which is what the Anglo-Saxon name was for the British. And can the manner of the burial give us any hints as to who might have been buried inside? In the north, it's speculated that when this form of burial recommenced in the middle of the Iron Age, it was used for prestige burials. 
Log coffin burials require mature timber oak logs that are wide enough to fit a human body. And because of the slow-growing nature of the oak tree, suitable trees are fairly rare and often have to be brought long distances, so that emphasises the wealth of the occupant. Unfortunately, at this sort of time period, there's so little evidence that it's impossible to have any certainty about about any of this. (laughs) But because the burial was aligned roughly west-east, we can feel that it's almost certainly a Christian burial. There are also no grave goods that remain, which again suggests a Christian burial, although by the early 7th century, it seems that the tradition of grave goods was rapidly dying out anyway. The hairiness and weave of the shroud have caused it to be suggested that it might possibly be a type of silicium, known more popularly as sackcloth or haircloth, and connected with repentance, humility and mourning. Anglo-Saxon imagery seems to show shrouds being used over the clothes, but at this time there was no settled custom, and so the person being naked would be unusual, as far as we can tell, but it then may be a further expression of humility. We we just can't tell. The location, though, is definitely not humble, as it's a spectacular location overlooking Morecambe Bay on the current boundary between the parishes of Quorma and Over Wiresdale. Old parish boundaries can preserve even older boundaries. Locations of individual burials like this can be connected to power, prestige, and can either mark the edge of territory or be an expression of dominance over an area or source of wealth. So combine this with the proposed status of log coffin burials in the north of England, and you get a really interesting mixture of a person of high status, possibly British, or at this date, maybe an incoming Anglo-Saxon, but this does not preclude them from being a religious person as well, because the majority of high-status Anglo-Saxon churchmen and women in the 7th century were part of the royal family, or from a prominent aristocratic family. What was happening more widely in the mid-7th century in this area? Fiona gave us a little bit more context to the burial. This would have been quite an interesting time in the northwest of England because we're seeing a bit of a political changeover. The arrival of Northumbrian kings in power and the dissipation of the rule of a Britonic-speaking nobility and royalty. When I say Britonic-speaking, I mean speaking a language akin to Welsh. So we don't know exactly which kingdom was prominent in this area, but one of the kingdoms nearby is the kingdom of Hreged. The last known princess of Hreged, who had the name Hrianvert, married King Oswy, the Northumbrian king. And we can see that happening at a time when the Northumbrian kingdom was expanding westwards. And Oswy's reign is around the mid-7th century. So this is the period we're talking about, probably, for the Quorma burial. If we go forward into the next reign, that of King Edgefrith, we get a bit more information pertinent to the Lancashire area. So we know that the very important churchman, St. Wilfred, was given some lands west of the Pennines. And we're told that some of those lay near the River Ribble, but there's a strong chance that they would have included lands further north going up towards the Lancaster area as well. This is an interesting account because it also tells us 
that the Britonic-speaking churchmen were fleeing at this time that the lands were granted to Wilfred. So it does seem that there was a presence of churches in the area already prior to the Northumbrian kings arriving, and that's what we would expect. Into the 8th century, the very interesting runic inscription that's on a very beautiful cross head and shaft We can see a cast of that in the City Museum. It has some Old English personal names on it, Cunibald and probably Cuthbert. So these are both Old English personal names. So what had been a Britonic or Welsh-speaking nobility by the 8th century has become an English-speaking nobility. But this cultural change would have happened quite gradually, I think, but more quickly at the upper levels of society. Another interesting question about this period is is the population density, and it's extremely hard to estimate this. It's likely population was relatively sparse west of the Pennines, But that doesn't mean the region wasn't important. I would argue the region was extremely important strategically. And and there's every indication that the Northumbrian kings thought so, because they put a lot of effort into extending their kingdoms westwards. There may be various reasons for that, such as an interest in the Irish Sea, possibly certain types of resources that were more accessible west of the Pennines, connections with the Britonic kingdoms, and ultimately an interest in absorbing those kingdoms. And some important Roman sites as well, because they were quite conscious of the Roman infrastructure. It can feel like this period in history is a different world, with mysterious rituals and power structures, which we only get small glimpses of through rare survivals like this shroud. But there are still legacies from this time around us in the modern world. It's a really interesting period because... In terms of the physical legacy in, say, the landscape or in terms of building heritage, it is quite hard to pinpoint a great deal from the early medieval period. After the end of Roman rule in Britain, there does seem to have been a decline in building in stone. And so the majority of the architecture would have been timber. The Northumbrian nobility would have been used to rectilinear Timber halls used for assemblies, important meetings, kings greeting the local nobility, which could potentially be extremely impressive, but there probably would have been different building traditions west of the Pennines as well. But we are lucky in the Lancaster area because we have the very important early medieval ecclesiastical site at Hesham, where we do have the upstanding remains of an 8th century church extended subsequently and still being used in the Viking Age and beyond. And then we could look at the place names of the area as well. So we have Hesham again, an Old English place name there with Ham in it, meaning settlement, settlement of the brushwood, something like that. A really nice example going a bit further east is Pendle Hill. It's essentially got three elements that mean the same thing. So the element pen means a high place or a head, and this is still in use in Welsh. This is then compounded with the element hill, which is in English and meaning the same thing. So you get pen hill. The two are run together as penel, eventually becoming pendle, and then we get hill put on again at the end. So effectively it means hill, hill, hill. But the the pen element survives, and, and that's a really nice example of the Britonic place name legacy in this area. Thank you for listening to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. There's lots more to discover in our other episodes, where we look at objects from suffragette medals to swimming stadium models.